what you do in a B-movie. The end is a little bit ridiculous. I was unsurprised to see that. And it's sweet! Oh my gosh, you guys need to go watch it. It's so good. It's so good. I want to watch it again. Hello, weary internet travelers, and welcome once again to the Before and After Show. Um, if you've never listened to the show before, what we do is each week we take a set of films that we've never seen before. I bring on a guest, and uh, the first episode in this set of episodes, uh, we talk about what our expectations for are those films and or of those films, and then the next week we come back having watched those two films. And we talk about what our final thoughts were on them and whether or not they lived up to our expectation. This week, I'm joined once again by Mike Moray. Hi. Hi, how's it going? Uh, good, except separated by hundreds of miles. Yes, uh, we had a mudslide that essentially trapped everyone in the valley. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so if if you notice that the... Um, the audio quality is a little strange. That's because this is the very first Skype recorded episode of the Before and After Show. Through the wonders of t- technology, we're able to bring you the same guest we did last week. So that's good. <laughs> um, Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. Yeah, so we watched a couple movies, uh, a couple Spielberg movies. But before we get into that, have you been watching anything this last week, Mike? You know, honestly, no. There you go. Nothing? Yeah, I don't think I've seen anything this last week that hasn't been part of the discussion that we're going to have today. Okay. All right. Sounds good. Um, Weirdly, I actually have... Oh, I hit the table. Uh, Weirdly, I actually have a couple things that I watched that weren't for the podcast. Um, Oh. Yeah. So first, I watched for the second time the Grand Budapest Hotel yesterday. Yeah. Saturday afternoon. Um. I don't know what your take on Wes Anderson is. I know he gets a, I know he has a reputation. Mm, Yeah. Uh, I like him in some things. I think Grand Budapest is his best movie by far though. Oh, you've seen it. Yes, I have. I like that movie a lot. It's super good. Um, the first time I saw it, I had a leak in my apartment where my neighbors were being real dumb about it. And so I didn't get to fully appreciate it. And so I kept hearing, like, I did not like that movie at all. And I tend to like his movies. Um, at the very least, I like his movies. Like, I don't think there's a single one that I actually don't like or hate. Um, mm-hmm. So the fact that I didn't like it, I was like, maybe it had something to do with the mood I was in. So I revisited it yesterday. And one of the things I kept hearing about it is that it was hilarious. Yeah. And yeah. I didn't think it was hilarious. I did find it funnier than I did the last time, but I think it tells a great story. I think there are really good storytelling principles in this movie. Yeah, I agree with that. I think it tells a really just interesting yarn with a bunch of likable characters. That's the thing that drew me to it. It was just the 
they had their Wes Anderson quirky characters, but they were likable in it, and they weren't douchebags, which is sometimes the problem that Wes Anderson has with like hipster people or not likable people and this is like lovable group of people yeah everyone's like everyone's very endearing in the movie um i will say that the character i found the most hilarious was either adrian brody's character who was just so over the top or um, (laughs) yeah willem dafoe's like weird silent hitman character Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> I thought those characters were so good. Um, I do think the, the, this is the best set of characters he's had, at least in his live action films. Um, my favorite mm-hmm. Wes Anderson film is Fantastic Mr. Fox. Still haven't seen it. I love, oh man, I love that movie so much. It's just Ocean's Eleven with stop motion animated foxes. Mm, I need to check it out one of these days. That's That's my favorite Wes Anderson movie, but yeah. So, so li- watching Grand Budapest again, I was able to appreciate it a significant amount more than I than I did before. I also think that guy hides his shot composition, and it's weird because I think he's actually really talented with a camera. Oh yeah, I definitely agree with that. Um, I think um, there's like all these really complicated dolly shots in Grand Budapest Hotel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he just does it very effortlessly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, like, there's, you know, people, one of the things they, they get on him about is his perfect symmetry in his uh, in his shot composition. But mm-hmm. I thought that worked really well in this movie. Yeah, I agree with that. The set design and all that was just amazing. And, and it enhanced the story that I thought was being told through it. Yeah, and, like, Ray Fiennes is really good in this movie, and I tend to not like him, but maybe that's because I think... I tend to think he's super pretentious, uh, just because <laughs> his name is Ralph and he pronounces it Rafe. <laughs> Fair enough. I understand that slightly. <laughs> yeah, so I guess take my opinion on him with a grain of salt. I mean, he was Voldemort, and he, you know, at no point did I think he ever phoned that performance in, so I think... That's not. I think if he was truly pretentious, he would have felt above those Harry Potter movies. And yeah, well, it's funny you mention that though, because I thought he didn't do a good job as Voldemort, and I was predisposed not to kind of like him in this movie because of that portrayal in the Harry Potter movies. Huh. I yeah. really liked him in Grand Budapest a lot. I thought he was so yeah. good. Yeah, me too. He was awesome. Yeah. He was like my favorite character by far. Oh, he was just yeah. so so darn likable. Yeah, and there's just like all kinds of weird like quirky stuff that that i don't know i think it suits wes anderson perfectly um i mm-hmm. think this movie screams of his style which like we yeah. talked about last week like i feel like every intention of his is on the screen and i like yeah. that yeah oh yeah it's a signature wes anderson movie nobody else can go and emulate who he is yeah and i think that that's the thing is i think that a lot of his detractors are actually just tired of the people trying to rip him off because i think yeah. he can put together a movie really, really well. But I think there are so many people trying for that Wes Anderson style that it's a little saturated and people are kind of fatigued by it. I agree with that. Yeah. I think that that's sometimes a problem with people have with directors is that they don't really have a problem with the director. They have a problem with their imitators mm-hmm. because like in, in the nineties, for example, you had a lot of people right after like Pulp Fiction came out and Reservoir Dogs, like people were trying to go and emulate Tarantino. Yeah. You still without- have that. Yeah, really being good about it. Yeah, yeah you do. True. 
Yeah, and and I think a lot of people tend to write Tarantino off where it's like, no, he puts together really good Tarantino movies. Everyone else is bad at this. Exactly. So in addition to watching Grand Budapest Hotel, I also, uh, I'm not done with this movie yet, but I wanted to talk about it this week because it just came out. I'm in the middle of, of um, Beasts of No Nation. Okay, what is that about? I've heard that a couple of times now. So it's the... Uh, you know the the like Coney 2012 movement. Oh yeah, yeah, Idris Elba and yeah. uh, like the child soldiers and yeah, okay. yeah. yeah. So the I'm not. Um, I mean, obviously, I find the subject matter heartbreaking, and I think that the Coney 2012 movement actually uh, hurt the work towards finding a, uh, an end to that cause. Uh, I agree. More than more than helped it, but I don't inherently have a ton of interest in it. What I think is, I think it's an important film because of its distribution model. I've kind of actively avoided talking about this on the podcast. I haven't actively avoided talking about this. I've talked about it a lot, and a lot of it gets edited out. <laughs> but I think now's the time. I'm really obsessed with the way distribution is happening now. Um, mm-hmm. partially because I'm of that world, you know? And so it's important to me to know where that's headed. And this is the first film that Netflix has funded under the Netflix banner. They've distributed a few other movies under, I think it was called red envelope productions. Like they did a, they distributed a, a documentary about the Westboro Baptist church. That's actually super good. Um, uh-huh. But that was just the movie was already made and they bought the rights to like distribute it. This one, they put up their own money to fund the production of it. Oh, okay. So it came out on Friday in on Netflix and in like in basically the give us Oscars uh, theaters <laughs> like the, the 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 I think there's four or five major markets that they have to open in in order to be awards eligible. And they Mm -hmm. opened there, but a lot of theaters are really pissed off about it because they view them as competition. But I was reading an article that was saying that, like, all you're doing as a theater by rejecting Netflix's offer to give you the movie is giving people a reason to go sign up for Netflix and watch the movie if they want to see it. Yeah, that's kind of brilliant, actually. Yeah. And so it's, like, it's super bold. Um, And I think Netflix has proven themselves with television right now. Um, so I think films are the next logical step and they've even, they have that, um, that Adam Sandler contract where his next like four or eight movies or something are going straight to Netflix, mm-hmm. um, which love him or hate him. Those Adam Sandler movies still make money. Yeah. Yeah. For whatever. Up reason. until like, up until pixels, I think pixels was like a real bomb for him, but yes. yeah, his movies still make bank. Yeah, so that was like a huge get for them. Um, and they're kind of in the middle of filming that right now. And there was some controversy over some like racist stuff in the script. I don't know if you heard about that or not. Yes, I did hear about that. Yeah, so that's for a movie that's going to Netflix. I don't know if it's later this year or early next year. So I I felt compelled to watch. I'm, I'll say this. One, I'm re- I, I basically when I found out that Netflix was going to start funding movies, I was like, I'm at least watching the first one because I think it's an important film just because of the distribution aspect. Yeah. I'm super glad it wasn't an Adam Sandler movie because I had resolved to watch it no matter what. (laughs) Yeah. So you were spared. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Because I likely won't be watching the Adam Sandler movie. Um, But the movie itself, 
doesn't have like a ton of talent in it as far as like known people. It's got Idris Elba, who's a big name. And it's yeah. got uh, behind the camera. It's got Kerry Fukunaga. I believe I'm pronouncing his name relatively correctly. He directed the first season of True Detective. Oh, OK. Wow. Yeah. And that guy turned this movie around so fast. Like it looks really polished for how fast he turned this around. Um because he basically went from true detective ending right into production on this. Wow. Yeah, that's quite a turnaround then. Yeah, it was less than a year that he got it uh, into production and edited and out on Netflix. Wow. Yeah. Um, and it's mm. not it's not bad. You know, I've seen I've certainly seen significantly better movies. It's it's a little slow, um, which isn't inherently a bad thing. But there are, are long stretches of what I think is nothing happening. But then there's mm-hmm. also, I do think that um, it does a very good job of showing, I think as accurately as possible, like the child soldier life. Yeah. And really what, like, what this, uh, one, how a child can be so easily manipulated into following a man like Idris Elba's character. And two, yeah. what happens when that man, uh, who is clearly a megalomaniac, starts stripping that innocence away from a child. Um, so it's not an easy movie to watch. And I think that's sending like Netflix is sending a message with that, that like they're unafraid to kind of tackle these subjects that are one touchy and two may not appeal to everyone. So I, I think it's I think it's a really bold choice to have a movie with this subject matter be your production company's kind of flagship. Yeah, I was going to say the bold was the word that I was going to use for that. Yeah. And. It's definitely a better foot forward than having your first movie be the Adam Sandler movie. Yes. Yeah, I, <laughs> I agree. Idris Elba is super good in it. Um, I don't know how you feel about him as an actor, but I think he's I've never seen anything I don't like him. in. I think he's solid. I don't know if he's as amazing as people think he is, but I think he turns in solid work in everything I've seen him in. Yeah, I agree with that. I think, once again, it's one of those situations where it's not the person's fault. It's the people talking about him and the discussion around this yes. person that's tiresome. Um, yeah. but, but he's a solid actor. I've always liked him in everything he's been in. Yeah, have you seen Luther, that BBC show he was on? I've seen like a couple of clips from it. I haven't watched like an entire episode or obviously a season yet, but mm-hmm. I want to. I want to get around to that. That one's really good. I actually prefer it to Sherlock, I think. Um, I think oh. I, I think it's good. Uh, I like that show a lot. It's really kind of like, it feels like a 70s cop show, but with like the BBC production behind it. It's weird. Um, yeah, I can see that just from the clips even. Like just the, the kind of grit that they have yeah. to it. I can see that. Yeah. So yeah, I think I think uh, I think this is an important step as far as film distribution goes, and I can only see more and more streaming services getting on board with this. Yeah, I think that it's a really important step forward. And I saw commercials on TV for it, mm-hmm. and I was like, wait a minute. And then it says like on Netflix, and then select theaters. And I was thinking, oh wait, what? They're actually doing this for once now. Yeah. Like it, it's it's huge. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of a model I've been obsessed with back, and I don't expect you or anyone else to remember this. Do you remember a Steven mm. Soderbergh movie called Bubble? Yes. Okay. You, I do. Do you know what the release model was for that? No, I just remember it was like a non-traditional release. It was a non-traditional release. It was the first movie that went, I was working at Blockbuster. No, 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 no. I was working at Hollywood Video when it came out. It went to DVD, video on demand, and theaters the same day. 
Oh, wow. And, I, and how did that pan out? Um, not great. No one saw it in all three. Um, <laughs> no one saw it in all three mediums, but it didn't get uh, advertised because no one knew how the hell to advertise it. And this was in 2006. So this is almost 10 years ago that that happened. And I remember the only buzz around the movie. I don't even know if the movie was any good. I couldn't even tell you what the movie's about. I think it has something to do with people who work in a doll factory. And... All I remember was the buzz around that movie was this distribution model is stupid and not going to work. And now it's basically how indie movies get distributed. Okay, that's interesting. I didn't know anything about that whole history of it. Yeah, so like almost every indie movie you hear, like if you listen to podcasts where people who are promoting like, you know, non-mainstream films are on, they're talking about like it's hitting VOD in theaters the same day. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, yeah. even and and it's drawing bigger and bigger names. Like Kevin Bacon was just in this movie called Cop Car, that is a small like micro budget movie that he made kind of mm-hmm. in between seasons of um, the following. Right? Is that the show he was yeah. on? He kind of yeah. made it in between in between seasons of that, and it got a VOD and theater release the same day. And now it's on DVD, like two months after it came out. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, so okay. it's, it's become significantly more viable in less than 10 years. And that's just, that's crazy to me. Yeah, no, I mean, we're changing all of our ways of viewing uh, movies. And then, obviously, TV shows with oh, House man. of Cards and that distribution model. Like, a lot of things are going to be different in just 10 years from now, even. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm like, weirdly obsessed with it. <laughs> so <laughs> I kind of, like, it's something that I talk about with, a, I've talked about with a lot of guests, but I've always edited it out because it doesn't yeah. necessarily make for interesting podcasting. But I think Beasts of No Nation in particular is a major, major step that needs to get talked about in these circles. Um, I think it needs to be. Yeah, well, also, and kind of tying into this episode, Steven Spielberg himself is like predicting the death of cinema, the traditional kind of cinema. And so that kind of leads right into today's episode. Yes, uh, we will take a short break and we will be back to talk about that exact thing. Back. Okay, so this week, as we get into the meat of the episode, we watched uh, two Steven Spielberg movies uh, from very different eras of uh, <laughs> this man's career. If you listen to last week's episode, and I suggest you do, because there is a a lot of good Spielberg and Tom Hanks talk in it, as well as a lot of good um, film criticism in general talk. So I would say go back and listen to it. But one of the things we've touched on is that there are certain eras to Spielberg's career. And the first film we're going to talk about is from, I mean, it's his first film that went to theater. So it's from the early Spielberg period. It even predates like him making blockbusters like Jaws. And the newest film we're going to talk about is uh, Bridge of Spies, which just came out this last weekend. And it's very much from the post 9-11 Spielberg trying to process Kind of like what it means to be American in this world now. And yeah. So we'll start with Sugarland Express, which which is from 1974. It stars Goldie Hawn and William Atherton. And it's inspired by true events. It's the film that got Goldie Hawn to come back to acting after a four-year hiatus. 
after she she won an Oscar and took four years off, I actually didn't look up why that was the case. But she said this is the movie that got her passionate about making movies again. And um, it's Spielberg's first like film. And it was also his first collaboration with John Williams. And, yeah. it, was, <laughs> and it was I'm glad you laughed at that. Um, <laughs> it, it was uh, it's also of uh, the first collaboration with Zanuck and Brown, which led to him making Jaws. So this film paved the way for Jaws and also paved the way for the relationship between Spielberg and John Williams. So base level, we kind of didn't have expectations for it because it, there's not a lot of information about this movie available. It's basically like, oh yeah, it's this like woman and her husband and they kidnap a cop to rescue her adopted <laughs> son or her son who was taken away by the state. And that was kind of all we could find on it, which is yeah, because that's kind of all there is to the movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there really isn't much more to say about it. Um, the, the, the Wikipedia is even short when I was trying yeah. to look up stuff for it. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I like I felt like I kind of lost the plot. Turns out I didn't, but I felt like I kind of lost the plot after a certain point because it, it, it I had a hard time paying attention to it because of how simple it was. And so I looked up on Wikipedia to catch myself up on the plot synopsis, and it was just, like, that entire, like, middle hour was condensed into, like, three sentences that I already knew what had happened. (laughs) Yeah, okay. I'm glad that we're both on the same page on this, then. So I kind of felt like the movie was a waste of time. I hate to say that. I I didn't want to say that coming into this episode, but my attention drifted, I'll be honest, throughout that entire thing. Yeah, mine too. Like, I actually had to go and stop midway through um, and just start watching it again like a different day just because it, was, it wasn't it was holding my attention. I wanted to give it like a fairer shot than I was in the mood for Did at that time. Did you start it over from the beginning? No, I just continued on. I, I maybe like, you know, went back like a scene or two and then just continued. Okay. Um, I actually, I watched about a half hour of it uh, the day we recorded the before show and then yeah. um, I had a thing to do, so I stopped it. But then um, my friend Brian wanted to watch the movie, but he didn't start it with us. So I went back and actually restarted it from the beginning and watched the whole Ugh. thing that way. It's This is a, this is a hard one. Um, you know, we were kind of texted about it, that you were kind of ambivalent to it. And I am too. But I don't think it's like, I don't think it's a bad movie, but I don't think it's a good movie either. Yeah, I feel the same way about it. Um, There's admirable qualities to it, which we can get into. Um, But I just felt like for 110 minutes, it didn't need to be nearly as long as it was. was That was my biggest thing. I felt like I was watching a three-hour movie throughout that entire thing. And there wasn't nearly enough plot or even character interaction. I mean, like plot isn't always important. Um, But it's plot or character interaction to go and justify that length. Yeah, and that was, I read, uh, I only read run, one review of it, and it was Roger Ebert's, and he basically said, and I I, I really agreed with him uh, on this, and that was, he, he said that just, this film lets you get to know the characters just enough to want to know more about them, but never goes beyond that. Interesting. And I was like, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I totally agree. Because there <laughs> Actually. are... There, I kind of feel that way about Bridge of Spies, too. <laughs> but sorry, go ahead. There are interesting characters here, but they they don't get enough screen time. And there are interesting character interactions here, but they don't get enough screen time. 
Mm-hmm. Well, like, for example, go ahead. I really liked the relationship between William Atherton's character and the cop that they kidnapped. Yeah, I agree. I think that was solid. I think that if they if Spielberg would have explored that more, and I would like to see, I don't think I would like to see Spielberg go back and remake this movie, but I would like to see <laughs> this movie from like 90s or like early 2000s Spielberg, because I think he would understand that now. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, where the heart of the film is. I yeah. agree. Yeah. And it, it was interesting because uh, you weren't on this episode of the podcast, but I let you borrow the film. We've both seen Duel, which predated um, Sugarland Express. And I feel like there was enough character stuff in that, which and that had even more of a simple plot than this. But that held my attention way better. Yeah, weirdly enough, I agree with that. Um, that movie didn't feel nearly as long as its runtime. This one felt way longer than its runtime. Yeah, so so what did work for you in this movie? I think um, this movie was illustrative and exemplifies Spielberg's ability to go and show you know the humanity of people. Um, like the, Despite the fact that Goldie Hawn's character and William Atherton's character are both convicts on the run, um, it doesn't go and judge them necessarily i mean they're both kind of stupid people like mm-hmm. that's more they're not like evil people they're just kind of stupid yeah and um it, it it portrayed like a certain amount of warmness warmness and humanity to them that was very relatable um he, he doesn't go and like judge them or look down upon them for making their stupid choices but he just goes and portrays the consequences of those actions which end up being um deadly yes. but um but he made very warm and likable characters. I actually really liked um, the the captain of the police force that's following them. Oh, I yeah, thought, yeah. I thought that his character was really interesting because, um, I mean, I guess we can explain a little bit what happens. Like, there's kind of just a slow motion chase that occurs across several days yeah, as people are being pursued. It's like if you played Fury Road at half speed and took out all the action. Right, and then, like, allowed pit stops for the uh, people to go and get gas. Yes. <laughs> Because the the mechanics of this whole thing was that they're holding a police officer hostage while they're driving away. And so the police are obviously letting them go slow, get gas, and get refills because they want to maybe negotiate the release of this officer. Right. Um, But I thought the captain character is just interesting in this movie because he's pursuing them. He's not portrayed as like some sort of corrupt lawman or anything like that. He seems like he's like a guy who wants to do things right. And I think he ultimately kind of wants maybe – a resolution that doesn't end in death. Yeah. Um, but he's just kind of forced through these choices to go and eventually have to go and kill one of them. And so I, I thought the movie was interesting from the standpoint there wasn't like a real clear villain or anything like that um, mm-hmm. or antagonist. It was just people and their conflicts playing out. I just wish it was a little bit more interesting um, and shorter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think that's the thing is there's such a seed of a good thing here, and such. And I think I think that's why I, I I'm I think this movie is interesting because there's this like proto Spielberg seed in this movie. Mm-hmm. Like you can see what he was going for, but he just didn't have the skill set yet. Um, yeah, and you can like you it's it's right there, and so you just see this director like on the cusp of brilliance. And he's able to deliver on it one film later in Jaws. But like I and it's it's interesting because I, I did this thing where I flipped the movies in my head where I was like, if Jaws was still Jaws and it came before Sugarland Express, I'm pretty sure Sugarland Express would be just as talked about as Jaws. Yeah, I could see that. Um, So it, it just like 
it's so right there with Spielberg's um, talents and the things Spielberg is, is known for. They're just... I don't know if he's just unconfident because he's young, but I don't know about that because Duel is, like, super arrogant. And I don't know if... And, like, Duel wasn't unsuccessful. Like, it got released and was popular in Europe. And so I just... I don't know what what it did. Like, if he it, like, screwed with him that it was going to theaters for the first time, but I feel like there's just... Like a like some element of Spielberginess that's not in this movie that would have just put it over the edge to an instant classic. Yeah, I can see that. I feel it does feel like a little unconfident. Um, I think maybe it's just the thrills of directing for Hollywood. I mean, he's directing Goldie Hawn. You know, he's getting like big time actors now. There might be some other studio demands that are playing into this. He also uh, helped write the story, and maybe mm-hmm. he isn't as disciplined as a writer as he is as a director, necessarily. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to figure out like what it is, other than just inexperience, because that could just be the main factor. Yeah, that's true. Um, William Atherton's performance in this movie really, really worked for me. I thought yeah. he was he was the best character in the whole movie. I really liked the way he played that character. And I, I if there was any character that I came to really, really care about in this movie, it was him. Um, mm-hmm. which uh, we'll go ahead and talk about the ending now. He ends sure. up dying um, because they go to the house where the family who had, uh, who had adopted the their son from the state had their baby and they had cleared the family out and put snipers in there and he tried to go into the house and so they shot him and he died. And yeah. that like worked for me a lot because he was the character that I came to care about. If Goldie Hawn would have died, I thought she did okay in the movie. I didn't have any problems with her performance, but I didn't care about her as much as I did William Atherton. So it wouldn't have hit me uh, the way this did. So I think the like, as weird as it is to say, I think the right character died in order mm-hmm. for to, me to like get the brunt of the ending. I agree with that. Um, I kind of thought it was surprising the way the movie is marketed as like a Goldie Hawn film that really Atherton steals the show as, as the husband con uh, convict and he's more likable. Mm-hmm. He's, he's like kind of stupid also. I mean, he's not, yeah. he makes dumb mistakes, but um, you grow to like him more and it's more affecting when he passes away in the movie as a result. Yes. One more thing I want to talk about, or two more things I want to talk about actually. Uh, one is, is, you know, we talked about how Spielberg can move a camera, and I think there are flashes of that in this movie, but also there are some angles in here where I was like, what the hell? <laughs> um, like what? Specifically, the what the hell one was, there's the shot when they when they break William Atherton out of his uh, prison, Mm-hmm. And they're riding with the old people. There's this like crazy tilted shot off the top of a cliff. That's just like, it's such a, it's such a severe angle while they're riding down the highway with these two old people that I was, it was so jarring and just like, what is this shot? <laughs> um, but then one of the other things that I really liked was their first interaction with the captain where, mm-hmm the captain's car pulls up next to them as they're driving down the highway. Yeah. And the camera goes from, you see it in the back window and then it hands with him to the left side of the car. And they tell him that if he doesn't pull in front of them or get off their tail, basically that they'll, uh, shoot the cop that's with them. Mm -hmm. So the captain, not wanting the cop to die, pulls in front of them and it pans to the windshield. And then, 
the William Atherton's character um, has an interaction with the captain and the captain like starts to talk to William Atherton and he he like slows down and goes to the other side and ends up on the right side of the car. And the, it's all one shot where like it pans to the right side of the car. And I was like, that's boss. Yeah, that was good. That was a really good one take. And yeah. it doesn't draw too much attention to itself. I mean, mm-hmm. I obviously drew attention enough for us to talk about it. But um, it, it did a really good job of telling a story and having multiple conversations and layers of conversations going on at once. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought that was really expertly done. I noticed that one, too. Yeah. Um, so I, there's so many flourishes of, of Spiel, Spielberg we know and love now. That I think I do think this movie is worth watching, if you're a Spielberg fan. Um, yeah, it's it's you got to be a hardcore Spielberg fan to do it. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely not a bad movie, and I would say the last five or so minutes kind of caught me off guard yes. enough to make me like it a yes. lot more than I did for the preceding hour and fifteen or whatever minutes. Yeah, um, when they make it to the uh, the RV lot. Um, after yeah. they spend the night and like the subsequent shootout up through the end is mm-hmm. really solid, I thought. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, totally agree. And then one other thing is uh, this is the first collaboration between Spielberg and John Williams. <laughs> okay, good. I'm glad we're talking about that. I almost forgot. <laughs> so in this movie, you can see flourishes of the man that will eventually be Spielberg. Mm-hmm. I don't understand how John Williams was found work after this movie. <laughs> yeah, man. The soundtrack that he made for this one was, I don't know, something else. It was very weird. Not not Williamsy at all. It was like, there was like harmonicas and steel guitars, but then like weird electronic drums. Yeah. But also it... like orchestral arrangements a little bit. It was so all over the place, man. Yeah, I was surprised that he was involved with this one. Yeah, I guess he was trying to make a you know a score that fit fit the film. I don't think obviously his like orchestral uh, you know motif kind of movie soundtrack would work too well for this. But the the country harmonica thing just wasn't working for me. No. It really dated this movie. Yeah, it did. It really did. Um, and then uh, I think last thing, and then we'll move on. This felt like a Coen Brothers movie through and through to me. Like I was I it, I even said in the last podcast, I didn't remember saying this, but then when I was watching it, I was like this is just raising Arizona. Yeah. Um it man, it felt it, like this feels like a, a the movie that the Coen Brothers have been trying to make <laughs> since the Coen Brothers have been a thing. <laughs> uh that's kind of funny but true i can see that totally just the way like yeah these kind of flawed people kind of stupid people who like whose own mistakes like complicate their own lives yes that's a very coen brother aspect that's basically the only theme in all their movies <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah so it felt it felt super coney to the point where i was like can the coen brothers remake this <laughs> you know, I bet they can make like a pretty decent version of this now. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. Yeah, I would, I would love to see that happen. Um, now that we've talked about uh, this being sort of the proto Cohen movie, <laughs> yeah, I think that is very bizarrely 
a perfect transition into <laughs> Bridge of Spies. The Coen Brothers written, yeah. <laughs> written by the Coen Brothers and another guy. I don't know the other guy's <laughs> name because I was so caught off guard by the Coen Brothers being involved with this movie. Yeah, man, I did not really see that coming because this did not feel like a Coen brother movie at all to me. They also wrote that Unbroken movie that came out last year. Wait, what? Yeah. Okay, I'm getting really thrown off today then. <laughs> yeah, so Bridge of Spies is a 2015 film, which is directed by Steven Spielberg and stars Tom Hanks. Um, you know, this is their fourth film together. And it follows the story of James Donovan, who is an insurance lawyer that's kind of thrust into uh, the Cold War as he decide or as he accepts uh, to defend a Russian spy or a man on trial for being a spy for the Soviet Union, and then is thrown into a hostage negotiation uh, <laughs> or a prison prisoner negotiation, uh, a prisoner prisoner exchange, I guess with the Soviet Union for a an American uh, military guy who has crashed in a U-2 in, in Berlin or in Russia? In Russia, right? In Russia, yeah. In Russia. And so it's, it's that story. It's a true story. I think that's all there is really to the plot. Um, <laughs> I feel like it's like another similar dilemma to um, oh, the, the previous movie, where you can pretty much sum up the plot right there and... That's it. Well, okay, so I, I'm glad you brought that up because I was thinking about that and I was like, that's kind of every Spielberg movie though, right? Like, if, Duel. Yeah. Guy gets chased by truck. Sugarland Express. People try to find their kid. Jaws, yeah, that Shark might be attack true. movie. Close Encounters. Yeah. Aliens are here. Like... <laughs> yeah, it's just... Sometimes he executes that simple idea better than others and finds ways to just, you know, ratchet things up. And in other movies, that simple plot uh, just feels kind of stretched out, where I kind of feel like that happens with this movie. But I'll let you go and talk about it first. Okay, I'm actually very interested to talk about you with this movie, because I really dug it. Um, that being said, okay. I do think that your criticisms are probably valid. Um, <laughs> I really, really, really liked this movie. I didn't love it. It's not probably not going to be on my top ten list come the end of the year. But it was... It was a very good movie. Um, as someone, uh, someone on my Facebook uh, wrote that it's a movie that's worthy of admiration, not adoration, and I totally agree with that. Um, I think mm -hmm. there's, there's, I think just the overall message of like America in this movie was just, <laughs> just like I felt so patriotic watching this movie, you know, and I, I thought. Just Tom Hanks, man. Like, he just delivers and delivers and delivers and delivers in everything he does. Like, I was... I love Tom Hanks, man. So he, <laughs> yeah. I thought he was so good in this movie. And I, I agree with that. I just thought it, it, it could have been a little bit tighter, but I also really liked spending time in the world. I liked the way it looked. I liked the character interactions. Um, I liked... The performance is almost all the way around. I just I just liked this movie a lot. That's fair. I mean, I can definitely see that. And the more I thought about this film, the more I liked it. Mm -hmm. um, 
is I came out of watching it feeling like, why did Spielberg even tackle this? Like, it kind of just felt like a waste of someone of his talent to go and do this movie. Because I just, it felt very energyless to me, especially when I first walked out of the film. I felt like the film just didn't have any sort of um, tension or stakes. I don't know if that's how you felt about it. Um, But even without knowing the history of this event, if you just look at the film itself, I kind of just felt like Tom Hanks' victory in this film, spoilers, he goes and manages to successfully rescue, you know, the spy pilot and negotiate the exchange. Um, I feel like the, the stakes, he was, his, uh, success was never in any doubt, um, for, for most of the movie. And so because of that, I didn't feel like there was like a lot of energy driving anything and, I just kind of fell out of it. I thought it was a good movie. It was solid. I liked the second half considerably more than the first half. Yeah, because the first half deals with just him representing the the Russian spy, and then the second half deals with the stuff that goes on in Berlin with the exchange and the talks between that. And the I, I thought was more intriguing in terms of Tom Hanks is trying to figure out what the Russians are after, and there's also... Mm-hmm. Uh, the East Berlin government, the the Germans trying to win recognition from the USSR, um, and they're playing like a role in it. I thought the intrigue going on there was more interesting than the first half, which was a lot of speechifying, and it, it felt very unmotivated speechifying, uh, versus the second half where I thought the speeches may have been earned more. And okay. I'll go and explain that with like one example. Um, I felt like – well, two – Tom Hanks like speech about how like oh this, this is like the Constitution. You're about to, yep. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ahead. Like. Yeah. Okay. So basically, Tom Hanks is representing the the Russian spy, and the U.S. government kind of wants to put him on trial, and they a lot of people officials are basically making it like a kangaroo trial where yeah they're giving him some due process, but really the result is preordained. He's going to go and be found guilty. And then uh, a CIA agent goes and tracks Tom Hanks down and they're talking in a bar and the CIA agent is trying to like get information on Tom Hanks and kind of convince him just to like let this go and throw this guy behind bars. But Tom Hanks is trying to be a good lawyer and give his client the best representation possible. And he goes and lectures him about what the constitution means. And I think it's an admirable speech I don't feel like it was particularly well earned within that spot in the narrative. Okay. And then can I respond to that? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. You're talking about my favorite scene in the whole movie. (laughs) Great. Because I loved that part so much. However, (laughs) it is completely unearned and super preachy, but it was great. Like Tom Hanks nailed it. I felt like. Oh, totally. Yeah. Like he, yeah. he sold it so much that I was like, that didn't need to happen now, but I'm kind of <laughs> glad it did. Cause he like, Tom Hanks puts this like great Hanksy button on that scene where he's mm-hmm. like, he, cause the guy is like, he says something about how there's no rule book in war. And Tom Hanks is basically like, no, we have the Constitution. That's the only thing that makes us American. The Constitution is the rule book. And then he just goes, and stop nodding your head at me like that, you son of a bitch. And I was like, yeah! (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like, the speech itself and the scene itself is really well done. 
like everything about the acting the delivery of that speech i agree with the contents of the speech even mm-hmm. like all that stuff is well done it's just in the context of the rest of the scenes around it <laughs> in the greater film i did not like where that scene was placed where that speech was placed that is fair enough but man i love that. yeah that was one of my favorite scenes of the entire year i, mean, <laughs> I, I loved that part so much yeah and then the other scene I was thinking of, which was also happening in the first half of the movie, was the scene where the Russian spy um, goes and talks to Tom Hanks. And then, <laughs> you're gonna, yeah, this is going to be another scene I think that you like. No, it wasn't. Um, okay, okay. Well, it's the scene where Tom Hanks is talking to the Russian spy. And the Russian spy is really impressed by Tom Hanks' like, you know, adherence to the rule of law and all these sort of things. And then he goes and gives like Tom Hanks like this story from his childhood and is describing Tom Hanks as like, oh, you know, you're the standing man from my childhood. Some guy who like went and stood up for other people and got beaten down but stood back up. And once again, that happens like around like the 30-minute mark or 40-minute mark <laughs> uh-huh. in the movie. And it was like this is like a climax like – cathartic kind of scene and we're having it like we're blowing it in the first act and it did not feel like that was earned at all by that point in the movie the whole time that speech was happening and he was like you know um there's this man that used to come over to our house and then the agents came and they beat my mother and they beat my father and they beat this man and i i had never seen him do anything remarkable in his entire time here but my dad had told me to watch him and they beat this man and he got back up and he beat this man and he got back up and he beat this man and he got back up and he says some like russian um words that they were calling him and they, it, it translated to standing man and he tells tom hanks that he reminds him of the standing man the whole time i was like uh this is only in here so he can call him the standing man at the end of the movie and guess what <laughs> that's 100 percent what happens Yes. 100% what happens in this movie. Yeah, that was so on its nose, transparent oh to me. It, it, it was That bothered me. That validated the last five years of people calling Spielberg schmaltzy. Like, that yeah. one scene was like, this is the schmaltzy Spielberg you're talking about. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I agree with that. That started to happen, and I was like, oh, no. And... <laughs> That movie or that scene felt like a climax because this movie is its own sequel, right? Because (laughs) any other filmmaker would have made this two movies and spent (laughs) one movie on the trial of this guy and uh, of Abel and then the other movie on the negotiation. Yes. This honestly, this movie in any other like studio with any other director probably would have been a trilogy. Where it's it's Abel and the trial and Donovan and then Donovan goes to Russia or East Berlin and negotiates the trade. Then we catch up with Donovan in the 60s and he negotiates the Bay of Pigs trade. That's yeah. With any other studio, with any other director, this movie, this would be three movies about this one Tom Hanks character. I mean, the, they would try to make this new Jack Ryan if they could, I feel like. Yeah, and I think it could have been like a really good miniseries, actually, over yeah. a film. Yeah, okay, that's a good point. I didn't think about that until right now, but yeah, I think so. Um, I think this is the cliff notes of the events that happened, and I think the events that happened are more interesting than a cliff notes version. And so I think there's a lot of interest that's lost in this. Um, I do think the film moves uh, kind of briskly. I, I didn't feel like it slowed down really. Um, mm-hmm. 
And that actually was kind of a problem because there are so many things that I would have liked to explore. As much as I liked the movie, I, I did feel kind of like robbed of information. Yeah, yeah. I feel like the movie had a weird thing where it just kind of felt like you were getting the bare essentials. Mm -hmm. And without like adding some extra texture and like other characters involved in this and other people involved in these negotiations, it felt like we were robbed of something that was a lot more interesting. That's the reason why I felt like there was no tension because I just kind of felt like, well, Tom Hanks is interacting with like one other person. And of course, he's going to go and have victory over him. It didn't feel like there's a lot of negotiation even going on in this film. If it, It was just kind of like... He's right. He's going to win. And he was right. The end. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, and I, I liked that character a lot. I liked the James Donovan character a lot. Yeah. Um, I think, and I, I, I don't mean to project onto you, but I think we both kind of have this, like, uh, and this character, um, just this kind of, like, all borderline pathological need to be right. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes. it's, it's definitely a personality trait I have for better or for worse. And so <laughs> yeah. seeing that in the James Donovan character, it was like one of the most relatable characters I've seen in a long time in a film to me where I was like, yeah, yeah totally. He should just, he's right. 100% of the time, everybody listened to him. Why is nobody listening to him? <laughs> yeah. I really liked his character. He's like a really noble character. And that's why I think that that whole thing about it being admirable is, is a good, uh, summation of it. Yeah, and I think, uh, to me, it's it's a movie whose message overcame its faults. It just, like, you know, I, I, with a lot of uh, what Trump is talking about, like, his whole slogan is, like, making America great again or whatever. Like, right. this really reminded me of, like, what made America great, you know? Yeah. More than yeah. anything Trump has said. This right. is like everything about this movie and the message of the movie was like, this is what made America great. This is what makes America great. And so there yeah. was that overall message was conveyed very nicely to me because as we talked about last week, that's the message Spielberg wanted to get across and Spielberg gets his messages across perfectly most of the time. And so mm -hmm. that was able to overcome a lot of that. It's not the best movie. Um, yeah. I think it's capable. I think it's capably shot. I, you know, Spielberg, like we talked about, knows how to frame a shot, knows how to move a camera. The U2 crash is great. I thought that was awesome. Yeah, yeah it's um, a good scene. But yeah, there's there's like just there's just things that are a little bit off. Um, it feels mm -hmm. a little undercooked. Yeah, Maybe. yeah, I think that's the best way to put it. Um, but it's also not a bad movie because. Spielberg doesn't have a lot of bad, like outright bad movies. Um, yeah. So it, it, I think we're coming across like we're crapping on it more than we actually are. Right. Yeah. And that's the thing is that like, I definitely have problems and I, I could talk about several others, but um, it, the, the core of it is really solid. Like it's a well-made movie. It's an admirable movie. I liked watching these people interact. I like watching Tom Hanks do his thing. Mm -hmm. um, and, and as a lawyer, like I really liked the whole constitutional aspect and, and you know, uh, defense rights and that sort of thing as well. Like there's a lot of really good elements about it. It's just undercooked and you can sense like there's a better movie, like a masterpiece even in this film mm -hmm. and it doesn't ever really come out. Yeah, yeah, and th you know, I think this is kind of we touched on this last week where this is a lot of the reviews I read said this is Spielberg and Tom Hanks kind of like middle of the road. I didn't get that from Tom Hanks. I did get that from Spielberg, but 
Spielberg's middle of the road is still better than most people's best. Yeah. Um, I agree with that. So it's still elevated, you know, there's still, it's still elevated over a lot of other things. Um, But I felt like Tom Hanks, like just killed it in this movie. I thought he was so good. I did not get that he was phoning it in or sleepwalking through this movie at all. No, I don't think so at all. He was at his most likable, most charismatic, most principled. Jimmy Stewart. Yes. <laughs> yeah, well said, pretty much. Just new um, Jimmy Stewart. More than almost any other movie I've seen him in, like I was like, this movie's made in the Cold War times? That's a Jimmy Stewart character. Yeah. You can see the glimpses of, of some Spielberg greatness as well. Like, yeah. There's a couple of scenes where he does not go and phone it in at all. Like I would say the opening of the movie is great. Like oh, that wordless. Oh, man. Yeah, yes. I mean, would you like to describe it? Uh, no, go for it. Okay, basically the beginning of the movie is you start with um, the Russian spy who's living in New York City who's like posing as a painter and there's a great opening shot of him like looking in the mirror and making a self-portrait of himself um, which is like great thematically because he's Mm -hmm. putting on a face for the world and like making something up as an artist and he's going then outside and he's going through the, the subway system and he's being tracked and it's just completely wordless for about 10 minutes where he's just kind of going about his business, getting like some secret spy information, cracking open like this awesome like uh, penny fake or nickel. quarter. Fake nickel, nickel, thank yeah. you. Yeah. Um, and, and like getting like secret spy codes and then the um, FBI come rushing in. I thought that scene was just expertly done. So good. And like the whole time the FBI is tracking him in the background. So like the focus of the character is switching of like which character the like the camera is yeah. focusing on is switching. And so there's like there's these like it's kind of not like crazy like one shot takes, but there's these like longer shots like you know, closer to like a 15 or 20 second shot where like the camera's following the spy, then boom, it's on the CIA guy, CIA guy, then boom, it's on the girls that he's following. And you're like, well, are they going to be something? No, it's back to the CIA guys. And so it's just like, it's, it's really cool and it's all silent. And that really drew me into the movie. I think that's what happened is I thought the movie opened super strong and I actually forgot about that. I thought it opened super strong. So I was just along for the ride the rest of the time. And yes. I was able to kind of ride that wave and 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 be on that high from the from that. Um, I thought the U2 shot was or the U2 crash was really good. One of my favorite transitions in the whole movie was uh, right before the trial started and the bailiff goes all rise. And then it cuts to like a 50s classroom of kids reciting the like getting yeah. their children reciting the Pledge of Allegiance. I was like, yeah. Yeah, I that was awesome. And I was like, sweet. <laughs> this is awesome. Yeah, that was a great shot. Um, I also really liked um, the, the shot in Berlin when they kind of just randomly switch to characters you don't know who the heck they are midway through the film. And it's during like the construction of the Berlin Wall and you're kind of like following this student oh, yeah. on his bicycle going through that um as like the the walls being constructed and he's trying to go to the other side on east berlin and take some people out like including a professor because he's a phd student he's getting his professor and his daughter out and um it, it is it's not just like a one take thing but it's, once again extended shots and it did a really great job of just capturing like the horror and the confusion of like this w- wall being built yes. and people like struggling the common man struggling against this conflict and i really appreciated that shot yeah that was good and then um well okay so 
I'm trying to think about the order I want to talk about this in because one yeah. of them has to do with the shots and one of them has to do with that character you mentioned. Okay. Um, I think we'll go with the shots. There's a shot um, while Tom Hanks is like crossing over from East Berlin back into West Berlin where there are people trying to climb the wall and they get shot. Yeah. And they die. And then there's this like cool thematic button, which people hate about Spielberg. I don't know why. I like these cool thematic buttons that he puts on them. <laughs> There's this cool thematic button that he puts on the very end of the movie after everything's wrapped up where Tom Hanks is on a subway train back in Brooklyn, going to the office, and he sees these three kids in almost the exact same formation that the three people going over the Berlin Wall had, <laughs> jumping over a fence almost ex- exactly like how the, these three people that died at the Berlin wall did. And they obviously don't get shot cause it's America. And it's just, <laughs> it's just like, that's, it just conveys that like America theme. Yeah. And, and perfect. And, and like Tom Hanks expression to that whole thing was just perfect because yeah. it's like, he's kind of like proud and relieved that nothing happens, but then he sees it also happen and he gets, and it, you can tell that he's remembering the Berlin experience. Yes. And then it's like this disappointment or depression that that actually existed in Berlin, you know, that he went through that. And I really appreciate that. It's like the last shot of the movie pretty much. Yeah. It ends on him like reflecting on that. And, um, I thought that was just awesome. Like it might be schmaltzy. I no doubt like that button might be a bit too much, mm-hmm. but I like that a hell of a lot more than the speech like that happened 30 minutes into the movie. (laughs) (laughs) It was, and not to mention it was done through visuals. And I think I appreciate that more than just people speaking the theme of the movie out loud. Yeah, fair enough. And there's a lot of really, I think there's a lot of really good visual storytelling in this movie. I think that's probably the strongest storytelling aspect of the movie. Um, Which is, I mean, it usually is in a Spielberg movie, but it's on display I think in spades in this movie, um, maybe that's because the overall like um, characterization and dialogue storytelling isn't as strong. Um, yeah. But I think the visual storytelling in this movie is so good kind of throughout. Yeah. Totally agree with that. So you want to maybe talk about the student as well, I think. Yeah. So one of the things that happens is, is there's this uh, American PhD student who ends up on the East Berlin side of the wall and he gets arrested um, for espionage? Is that why? He gets yes. Arrested? He gets arrested yeah. for espionage because he's writing his thesis on, um, like, the... Eco- Socialism or common communism. Communism on the economics of... He's an econ student. And so he's yeah. writing on, like, um, communist economic systems, basically. And he gets arrested for espionage. And so it turns into Tom Hanks negotiating for both this PhD student and the military guy who was in the U2 that got shot down. But mm-hmm. the PhD student is being detained not by the USSR, but by East Berlin. And so he's yeah. he's got to kind of now negotiate between the Soviet Union and East Berlin to get like a like an agreement between them to where it's like two for one, basically. Right. And one of the things that I had to let grow on me because that PhD character isn't in the movie that much. Mm-hmm. And so he doesn't feel necessary. Like you kind of understand that like Tom Hanks is pathologically has to be right and do right by everyone all the time. But yeah. for no other reason than that is he trying to save this kid and it doesn't feel that earned. But then I was thinking about it 
And I was like, well, that's kind of the message of like, we don't need to spend a bunch of time with this character. The simple fact that he's a human being means he should be freed. (laughs) That's a really good point. Yeah, I like that aspect now more that you put it that way. Yeah, so I had like a lot of problems with it. And then I got like, because he says, there's like a line where he's talking to, I think it's the CIA guy. And mm-hmm. he basically tells him, like, no, every life in this matters. Yeah. You know, like, every, every, everyone involved matters here. Like, no matter what side you're on, these are still, before, before they're Russians, before they're Germans, before they're Americans, they're people. And yeah. so I was like, well, maybe I'm reading too much into this movie, but it helps me accept it more. Um, right. Well, just, and also when he went in, when he went in and put it also in the sense that like you know the Russians and the Germans they could be testing us mm-hmm. like to see whether or not we're willing to go and exchange one for one or if we'll go get two for one. And I also like that aspect of it more than two. I didn't need to know who the student was. It's that Tom Hanks is showing, hey, in America, two lives equals one. You know, or however many lives it takes equals one person's life. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And so I, I think, I think, man, that overall theme of like what separates America from everyone else is really good. But also, I think it, I think it, it has that theme in it. But it also has the theme of like, but also we're all humanity, and I like that. Um, yeah, you know, I like that. It's like we all need to be unified over the fact that we're people first. Right. And I totally forgot to say. Oh, and then the. Um, the guy he's negotiating with with the USSR, he tells him that he's like an he tells him that he's uh, involved with the embassy somehow, but he turns yeah. out to be like a high up in the KGB. Mm-hmm. And I found that like when they revealed that, I was like, oh, snap. And then they don't do anything with it. <laughs> I was like, yeah. oh, dang it. Um, yeah. And it kind of reminded me of I think we've talked about this. I think you're the one who showed it to me. It reminded me of that picture of Putin meeting Reagan. <laughs> yeah when he's yeah. in the kgb and like but he's posing as like just like a russian citizen that wants to meet reagan yes yeah because like reagan uh yeah it's he was visiting the ussr and then putin's just kind of posing with his quote-unquote child um, yeah. <laughs> and meeting him there and yeah it's it's kind of creepy that's a picture. super intense picture like knowing what's going on there and so i yeah. thought there was gonna be more of like that aspect to it but it wasn't it was just yeah. like, oh yeah, that guy's not who he says he is. He's actually part of the KGB. But everything you still—that's still who you have to negotiate. Yeah, with. yeah, exactly. Like it didn't change any aspect of any of the negotiation once yeah. you found that out. Yeah, and so it was like, well, then why do I even need to know that? Like, yeah, purely for the historical aspect, I guess. I guess, and it feels like the movie is kind of full of those things. Where obviously I don't want them to go and embellish the story too much, but there's a lot of like obvious story turns it could have taken um, that they don't go down. Like in terms of, I felt like Tom Hanks has an assistant character who's brought up in the first like five or ten minutes of the movie, and yeah. then like, and there's like a weird subplot that's hinted at him and Tom <laughs> Hanks's daughter, and that's then it gets completely dropped. Completely dropped. And she comes home and is like, oh, I got stood up by this guy. And Tom Hanks is like, oh, that's awful. Like, he kind of manipulated the situation to where he knew. But then yeah. that guy shows up at the dinner table and nobody mentions it. And the daughter's not awkward about it at all. Yeah, like, I was really confused by, like, what that was supposed to suggest. Yeah. Yeah, it was oh. that was that was confusing. And he served only to be a mirror for at the end of the movie when he 
talks to the other guy's assistant because he's reminded of his assistant back home. Yeah, yeah. But that wasn't motivated. Like, I felt like that was, once again, like another unearned thing because Tom Hanks goes in uh, to go explain what happened. Tom Hanks is dealing with, you know, the USSR and then also um, the Germans. And uh, the German side is being very obstinate because they want to go and just have a one-for-one exchange, the student that they captured with the pilot. And uh, Tom Hanks wants to get the pilot and the student and everybody all exchanged. Um, However, he gets like a lot of... uh, obstacles in his way but then he goes and connects with a student who goes in or a a younger associate um in the east berlin who's working with the government and he kind of convinces and works his way with that guy and i i think yeah it's based off of his relationship with his own associate back home but that just was not earned that connection i felt like yes i agree oh what did you think of i didn't look up the actor but the guy who played abel he was good. He was really good. He was the, the so Soviet good. Department. Yeah, I really liked his character. Um, it, he was probably, besides Tom Hanks being unsurprisingly good as yeah. Tom Hanks, um, that guy was probably the best aspect of the whole movie. Oh, yeah. Um, he had he like, was he had, so good. Yeah, he just had like a really good, quiet dignity about himself. Yeah. Um, so this is, this is more situational, I think, unless this happened to you. Uh, I texted you after we got out of the movie, and I called it... Um, Bridge of Confused Old People. (laughs) The reason I called it that had nothing to do with the events that unfolded on screen. It had everything to do with the events that unfolded in our theater, which is that we, my fiance and I were the youngest people in there by about 20 years. Because we saw it at 11.45 on a Saturday morning. um, Uh Because I like going to the movie at old people times. And... um, I leaned over to her and I was like, well, it's good to know that Spielberg still puts butts in seats. They're old white butts, but they're butts. And uh, what proceeded was like a triangle of unconnected groups of old people explaining the movie to each other in normal speaking voices. (laughs) Because none of these old people could understand the accents. So it was, what did he say? Was heard a lot. And also, uh, okay, so he's the student. No, no, he's the pilot. Oh, okay, wait, but who? what's the name of the spy again? Because they use the character names a lot. And so yeah. they couldn't, like, get the characters right. So, like, what? Yeah, so they would be, like, talking about Pryor, who's the student. Uh-huh. And they'd be like, okay, so that's the pilot. And then their daughter or granddaughter or whatever would have to be like, no, Mom, that's the that's the student. <laughs> oh. Okay, I felt like the movie did a really good job of actually... No, no, it did. (laughs) You're right. (laughs) I mean, I won't lie. There were a lot of, like, old, bald, white men in that movie who, like... like, There's, like, the CIA handler dude, and then there's, like, the guy who's, like, leading the plane program dude, and then there's, like, another... It was, like... Yeah, yeah, that's... Five of those people. Um, And then, obviously, the, the U2 pilot and the student who get captured... I guess similar looking bland white men with just like young brown. white guys. Like, yeah. But like, geez, I don't know. I feel like the movie did a really good job explaining that. That's hilarious. Yeah. It was just so, and I was like, old people better stop complaining, man. Like <laughs> I was thinking, I'm, I'm now thinking, good God, like how do people ever get through a Christopher Nolan movie? Yeah. Right. Well, and 
they, like most of them didn't know that Spielberg directed the movie. I think they just went because they were like alive during the Cold War and Tom Hanks was in it. <laughs> because like it ended and there uh, one that was the loudest theater I've been in all year. Um, so uh, that I mean I guess the sort of nerd collective that goes to these movies is more respectful of the superhero movies than these people were of people's experiences during the Cold War thriller, which I thought was <laughs> hilarious. Um, and two, uh, they clapped at the end of the movie, mm-hmm. but I heard, uh, I heard several people come to the realization that Spielberg directed the movie and that's why they liked it so much. Um, because it <laughs> like, ended and several old white women went, wow. And then Spielberg's name faded on the screen and like a bunch of old white guys were like, oh, Spielberg directed this. That's why it was so good. <laughs> like they needed that final representation to go and confirm that it was good. Yeah. And then um, it was also hilarious because like I said, these are, these were definitely people that were alive during these times and uh, I heard several people be like, oh, I didn't. I really thought they were going to kill Abel at the end. And I did not want them to. And I was like, wait a minute. You were rooting <laughs> for the spy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is bizarre. Especially in Bakersfield, of all places. <laughs> yeah, it was super weird. And then I was like, wait. I mean, I don't know a lot about the Bergdahl situation, but isn't it pretty similar? Or maybe it's not. I don't know. But what? I feel like you have the exact <laughs> opposite view on that situation. Yeah. <laughs> That's so weird. Huh. It was super weird. Like, there were like two or three people I heard talk about like how worried they were that that guy was going to die. That's very strange. I'll say that much. Yeah, it was it was it was a hilarious viewing experience for me. Like I wasn't mad at these old people because it was too funny. Yeah. Um, but it was just it was it was really comical listening to uh, like the running old people commentary, and that made me be like, Oh man, dude! I felt like the movie was like as straightforward as possible. <laughs> yeah, I don't right? even understand. Like it was almost too simplistic feeling. It felt like. Yeah, uh, I don't. Well, and also with the accent stuff, I feel like everyone was very like, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Audible or yeah. legible or yeah. you know whatever. Like I totally understood what everyone was saying throughout the entire movie. God help somebody if they walk into Christopher Nolan here, Bane or something like that. Yeah. Um, oh man. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it was hilarious. Also, Spielberg shot this on film, and it. I don't know what your theater looked like, but mine looked great. Okay. I guess the film itself looked good. I was not a huge fan of the staging of the um, the offices, especially in the movie. They were all like lit with this harsh white gloom oh, um, yeah, coming yeah, through yeah. the windows. Mm. That bothered the crap out of me. And it's kind of become more of a recent Spielberg thing in general. A lot of his movies are lit the same way. And it, it took me out of the movie because it didn't feel like those were real places. It felt like they were very stagey to okay. me um and that uh, i really wish that he would kind of get away from that look mm-hmm. but uh, i mean in general like the shots that we were talking about before um, that were really great i think benefited from the way that film works yeah i just there was like a really cool looking grain on the film yes. like on on yeah. the projection that like you could still tell that it was shot on film which a lot of films that like I'm told are shot on film and I go see them in digital. I can't really tell the difference, but this mm-hmm. one, like it looks like Spielberg went out of his way to be like, 
and not be in your face about it the way a lot of these other directors are like i'm all about film i'm all about shooting on film like he just did it and then released it and i honestly feel like i noticed it way more in this than someone who's like at the like like a nolan who's out there that's like i shot it on film so you should go see it on film (laughs) and i feel like it just like it kind of organically popped out at me and i was like able to pick out that it was on film yeah, it, I, it looked really good. I yeah, agree with that. It looked really... I forgot how good film looks, man. Yeah, Cause I totally agree with that. I made the journey to go see Interstellar in um, 70mm, and maybe it's because I didn't see it projected digitally as well, but I couldn't really tell a difference. Yeah, I don't feel like that movie benefited either way from, from whether or not it was film or digital. Um it, it was a fine-looking film, but um, I don't feel like no one really used film to its best extent either. Yeah. Yeah, and so I felt like Spielberg just used it way better than than most people have been who have been championing film very vocally. I feel like he yeah. just kind of did it very quietly and was like, people will notice. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that for sure. Um, oh, one thing I wanted to touch on was... What did you think of the score? Because John Williams made wasn't involved in this. Um, he was too busy scoring, I think, Force Awakens. Or yes. He also had a surgery, um, I think, right before he oh, did yeah. Force Awakens. Mm-hmm. And so that's part of the reason why he couldn't do it as well. Um, what did you think of the score? I didn't notice it. Okay. At all. Like, I, I, there were several moments. I thought there was barely any music in the movie. Maybe I'm yeah. lying, but I just, I, there were, cause I was trying to listen for it every time I like wrote, cause I'm, I'm bad at picking up on music and movies anyway. Um, I, it's not really the first thing I notice. Um, unless it's like a John Williams movie and then I'll, I'll, you know, if it's someone that I know, I'll kind of pay attention to it. Or like Wes Anderson has very distinct music in his movies, but most movies I don't really pick up on like music cues. I'm really, I have a really bad ear for that. Um, mm-hmm. so this one I had to consciously remind myself and there were four times I could remember consciously reminding myself, listen for the score to see if you can tell that it's not John Williams. I'm sure you can, cause it won't be as good. And like no score happened for such a long time that I forgot again. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was yeah pretty unremarkable. There's a couple of scenes where it stood out, not necessarily like in a great way. It was just there. Um, I feel like it maybe would have benefited more from a Williams score, though. Yes, I agree. I agree, because his score to Lincoln is super good. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I didn't really notice. I mean, I noticed that John Williams didn't score it, because I didn't notice the music. But <laughs> I, I didn't notice that it was there was music in the movie hardly at all. Yeah. Um, and even then, it was more the pop songs than anything like the, the of the era, which there's only like two. But there's like a couple moments where there's like of the era music or like, the characters are listening to music. That's what I noticed mm-hmm. music in the movie. <laughs> yeah. Okay. There you go. So, um, overall, what'd you think? I think, what, what, I, I think it's worth seeing. I think it's certainly worth killing, a you know, uh, two hours and 15 minutes on a Saturday morning with a bunch of, uh, old people. Um, <laughs> well, you can give or take the old people. I don't know about that. <laughs> I, I, I liked it. Um, I thought that uh, thematically it did that Spielberg thing where Spielberg wanted to get across the theme of like we're united as people and we're America and we're great. And I think he mm-hmm. conveyed both of those themes perfectly and got his point across the way Spielberg only can get his point across. Um, as a film, I think it was probably pretty weak for Spielberg, but still 
better than a lot of people's uh, shot at this. I feel like if anyone else had taken it on, it would be very stock. And I thought it was super well acted. You know, I don't think it's award-worthy acting, but I think there were likable, 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 likable characters in this movie. What about you? I think I pretty much feel the same way. And on that note about how, like, it's not award-winning acting, I think um, I think that's just mostly because these people played average people. Yeah. And they weren't, they weren't, like, showy performances or anything like that. But anyway, yeah, getting ahead. back to the... Yeah. Uh, I thought it was a, a really solid movie. Actually, talking about it over the course of this podcast has made me like it more, despite the fact that we actually point out more flaws than good <laughs> things. Um, it, and so I think this it speaks to a quality about it, and it is a very admirable film. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and like I had some problems about with it in terms of at the beginning of the film, especially the first step. I felt like it was trying to make like a real problematic moral equivalence between the United States and the USSR because it was kind of portraying the trial as a sham of the Russian spy. And I was getting a little uncomfortable with that. But then I think the remainder of the film goes and shows that, okay, we have our problems, but there's still principled men like Tom Hanks's character, James Donovan, who, who are going to uphold our ideals. And that's what makes us great. And you know, also there's a common humanity aspect as well. But um, once the movie got past that, like, I felt I, I enjoyed it a lot more. What you said earlier, like, why did Spielberg take on this movie? I would say that's why. Um, okay. Is because he's just trying, like, because every movie he makes is just him trying to figure out the world. And that's kind of the world we live in now. And so he's trying to figure that out and, like, convey a message about what he thinks about it. Yeah, well... And through the process of him figuring out how the world worked, we just had a podcast about his film, Figuring Out How the World Worked, where I figured out what he was trying to say in his movie <laughs> about figuring how the world worked. <laughs> so <laughs> um, thank you, MJ. I'm glad we had this talk because I processed through what I was thinking about this movie. <laughs> there we go. Did we just solve the world? I think we did. Okay. Um, I think our work uh, here is done then. All right. Well, thanks for having me on. <laughs> yep. Sounds good. We'll leave it at that, I guess. Um you can find us on uh, Facebook. You can find us on Twitter at Before and After Pod. That's at Before, the letter N, After Pod. Uh, subscribe on iTunes. Subscribe on SoundCloud. Rate the show. Email the show, Before and After Show at gmail.com. Um, until next time, go watch uh, something. I don't know what. I don't know. All the Spielberg movies. All of them! <laughs> All right, uh, <laughs> that didn't work the second time. Makana-san. Makana-san. <laughs> <laughs>